Welcome to the Institute of World Politics and uh, welcome to all of you who are joining us as well online. I'm Patricia Schlitter, founder of the IWC Global Impact Discussion Series. Um, I'm delighted to see so many of friends, uh, new friends also, to IWC. For those, for those of you who are um, new to the Institute, um, we are an independent graduate school of national security and uh, international affairs. We offer five master's degree program and 18 certificate in, of graduate programs, as well as executive masters. Um, as you may know, IWP's mission is de dedicated to developing leaders with a sound understanding of international realities and the ethical conduct of statecraft based on knowledge and values, common goals IWP and, and Brookings, Brookings share in common. It's not just an honor for me, but also for IWP to welcome Tom Wright today. Um, I appreciate if all of you turn your phone off, unless you're on Twitter, um, and the hashtag for the discussion, since we're on the, on the record, will be uh, geopolitics. So Tom Wright is the director of the Center on the United States and Europe and a fellow in the project on international order and strategy at the Brookings Institution. Um, and let me give you, a give you a moment to present the purpose of the project at Brookings uh, is to understand the, the changing power dynamics in the international system and the implications for your strategy and international cooperation. Tom is also a non-resident fellow at the Lowy Institute for International Policy. Uh, previously, he was Executive Director of Studies at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, a lecturer at the Harris School of Public Policy at the University of Chicago, and Senior Researcher for the Princeton Project on National Security. Wright works on U.S. foreign policy and grand strategy, Donald Trump's worldview, the future of Europe, and Asian security. Um, he also um, he has a doctorate from Georgetown University, a Master of Philosophy from Cambridge University, and a bachelor's and master's from University College Dublin. He has also had a pre-doctoral fellowship at Harvard University's Buffer Center for Science and International Affairs, and a post-doctoral fellowship at Princeton University. Right. Uh, writings um, have appeared in the American Political Science Review, Orbis, Survival, The Washington Quarterly, Financial Times, International Herald Tribune, and The Washington Post, as well as a number of international newspapers and media outlets. So we're extremely fortunate to welcome um, Tom today. Tom Wright is uh, the author of All Measures Short of War, The Contest for the 21st Century and the Future of American Power, um, also available for sale at the entrance. He assesses why it is that a number of commentators are arguing that the liberal international order appears to be unraveling, and if indeed it is, what strategic choices face the United States and its allies? But I won't give you the answer, uh, Tom will. Uh, crucially, Tom will ask how the liberal order can adapt and thrive in this new age. He will propose a new American strategy called Responsible Competition, directed towards bolstering the liberal international order and maintaining Western's influence going forward. So let me start. Um, uh, by this. So, as you know, there's a lot of events in the world. Being in Washington, D.C., we're pretty much served with lots of think tanks and discussions, uh, and it's occupying a lot of attention. Sometimes, usually when you give talks on international order or U.S. leadership, these kinds of issues, um, you, start, you need to start off by explaining why we should care about this question. And I think President Trump has taken care of this this week. Um, and 
and it's a tough week to be an optimist with everything happening in the world. And it reminds me of, of an old Russian joke, which I'm, I'm sure you know, about the difference between a pessimist and an optimist. And the pessimist is somebody who looks at, at the world and, and sees that everything is dark and says, it can't possibly get any worse. And the optimist says, oh yes, it can. So the, the book, Tom's book, explains why Great Power Rivalry um, has the, the U.S. return, how to think about it, and how can we respond to it. And his book has driven significant debate and received some fantastic reviews uh, in the media and, and have a great impact on how we think on international order today. So if you're looking for a great summer book, well, this is it. <laughs> So I'll let you, I'll, I'll ask you a question first and then I'll go further on the notion of international order. So Tom, I'll, I'll ask you, why this book? Uh, because you say it's not an international order that falls apart. So what's next? Because initially you were expecting um, Hillary Clinton to become president and you furiously wrote some parts of it. So what changed? <laughs> Firstly, Patricia, thank you so much for the invitation and to the Institute for Royal Politics. Um, it's a great pleasure to, to be here and thank you all for coming on such a hot uh, summer's uh, day. Um, you know, I think it's it's interesting. I, I, I started to write this book, I guess, a couple of years ago, but I've been thinking about it for some time uh, beforehand because when I did my uh, graduate studies, I, I worked on sort of issues of international order and, you know, in the 2000s, there was this assumption sort of underpinning uh, much of the conversation about the future of the international order, which was that we were all sort of headed on the same sort of pathway toward liberal international order, right? That we had this sort of notion of convergence that over time, all countries, uh, you know, the BRICS, uh, many other countries at all become responsible stakeholders uh, in the international order because essentially we all share the same challenges. We have the same problems terrorism, nuclear preparation, economic volatility, and it was believed that these issues were much more important uh, than the old-style geopolitical issues uh, that divided us. So no one really talked that much about territorial disputes, and there were crises and problems. You know, the Iraq war in 2003 was incredibly divisive, but it was largely uh, confined to the Middle East. You know, the, the countries that objected, objected at the UN Security Council. No one really worried that the U.S. is going to invade Iraq and then invade France or, you know, anywhere else. And, the, and you, you know, Russians and Chinese and others didn't send troops to Iraq. They didn't arm Saddam Hussein. And so all of these crises were sort of contained. And I remember thinking in sort of the late, you know, around 2006, 2007, that this sort of notion of um, particularly when Obama uh, took over and, and we had the sort of, and just after the financial crisis, that that assumption of sort of responsible stakeholderism or convergence, um, that there were real limits to it. You know, because all of a sudden China began to push back and Putin gave his speech in Munich in 2007 and there was a little sort of, you know, embers of geopolitical competition um, re-emerging. And I think those really gathered pace in 2010, 2011, but they were still quite 
uh, limited. And so I was interested for a while in, you know, what strategic competition looks like in the in the 21st century and, and how that's sort of constrained or shaped by globalization. And then as sort of the years went on and as, uh, you know, Putin returned, uh, returned to power in Russia and Xi Jinping came to power in China and the financial crisis like that stagnation sort of continued, I think we saw the very rapid unraveling of that idea of, you know, convergence. And instead of convergence, we had significant divergence. And we had Russia and China beginning to, for the first time really since the Cold War, to balance against the United States. You know, the, one of the defining features of this post-Cold War period was the absence of balancing political scientists wrote many books about it, that balancing has sort of returned. Um, so we saw them sort of push for a sphere of influence. Um, we saw the hopes of convergence in the Middle East sort of fall apart really after the failure of the Arab awakening. And there was no real prospect of positive reform there, either under the Obama sort of vision or under the George W. Bush uh, vision. Um, and the globalization, of course, became this incredibly controversial uh, dynamic after the financial crisis. So that's sort of really what led me to, to write the book and I was sort of glad I didn't write it earlier actually because I think it, you know the, the developments uh, continued sort of a pace and so it's really about what this period, this new period, this new era of strategic competition will look like in a world that's still interconnected, still interdependent, still globalized. You know this is not going to be a return to the 19th century, it's going to be something quite different and so I try to look at what that competition is like and just one final word before we, before we talk more detail, I guess, about different parts in terms of Trump. You know, I, I didn't think Trump would win. Um, and I, I thought, uh, well, after after the, the book was essentially finished before the election, and then after the election, they said, oh, you can go back and re-look. But actually, I didn't have to rewrite that much of it, because what I sort of began to realize was that the book is essentially about why the world and how the world is becoming more nationalistic and geopolitically competitive. And I thought, sort of in the latter part of the book that the U.S. would be probably be pushing back against that. I didn't realize that it would actually be enveloped in it to a greater extent um, than, than I had thought. So actually, in some ways, the argument of the book, I just should have taken it a bit further, you know. And so most of the, you know, 95% of it, I think, still very much um, held up. I did address it in the introduction and in the conclusion about what it, what it means, because I do think that Trump... Personally, you know, I, I started to write about Trump's foreign policy about 18 months ago, and I thought from the beginning that he does have quite a radical critique. He is sort of an opponent of the international order, has been for 30 years, um, but he is somewhat constrained, I think, by his cabinet and by the establishment and by um, institutions and how he goes about that. So I think one of the interesting things, and we can talk about it, is the extent to which he will be able to sort of, you know, further erode the international order or if he will be constrained by it. But I think either way, you know, the big sort of development, the big change that the U.S. will not be a champion of sort of upholding the liberal international order as long as he is uh, president. So to, to lead further to what you said, um, in all those crises and all those successes, the United States has played a pivotal role. Um, and you, your book talks about the need for the U.S. to play a leadership role in the, in the international system. So is that still true? Is there still a, a space for the U.S. to lead, and what can it do to build restraint into the international system? Yeah, no, great question. I mean, I, you know, I'm pretty 
optimistic actually about the US. I mean, I think the United States is not a declining power at all. And I think the US in some ways is even a rising power in some other areas that may be uh, relatively in decline vis-a-vis -vis China. But overall, it's very competitive. And I think we sort of overstate sometimes just by looking at some very crude metrics of GDP growth um, or other things, we sort of massively overstate uh, sort of the, you know, U.S. relative decline even. I mean, if you look around the world, there's an argument that the U.S. is in relative decline in some areas vis-a-vis -vis China, but it's certainly not vis-a-vis -vis Russia. I mean, it's been increasing vis-a-vis -vis Russia. That doesn't seem to have helped things very much because uh, Russia has still been very troublesome and its, and its growth has actually been stronger uh, than many European countries. So I'm very optimistic um, about the United States and I think the US has sort of a choice of strategies available to it. So it can choose to lead or not to lead. That's really, you know, up to, you know, that's up to the president, that's up to people at the, at the ballot box uh, to decide um, what option they want. So, uh, you know, there are some people out there who think that the United States can't lead because it's physically not possible. Um, I think that the U.S. can, but I think it has some challenges. Um, and one of them is that we're sort of stuck in this mindset of convergence where the U.S. strategy is sort of organized around the idea that there isn't a significant geopolitical competition. I think Obama really understated uh, the degree of geopolitical competition between the major powers. And so I think the main sort of challenge is to understand what leading in a more geopolitically competitive world looks like, like what strategy you want to sort of adopt. And so in the book, I go uh, between a, a couple of different strategies. Um, the one I favor is uh, what I call responsible competition, which is to sort of recognize that the world is more competitive and that the primary challenge, the big new thing really is the old thing, is the return of geopolitics. Um, but it's how to do that on a regional basis, because I think that will unfold uh, really regionally and how to do so recognizing, and this is where the title of the book comes in, um, that the competition will not be leading up to a major conflict. I think major conflict is unlikely. It could happen inadvertently, but I I think all countries are sort of competing uh, with all measures short of war, with all of the different things below the threshold of major conflict. And so understanding how to, you know, wage that competition and succeed in that competition uh, beneath that threshold of, of major conflict, I think is the primary challenge. So I try to get into detail on that. And then the other thing I do is sort of look at you know, strategies of restraint, strategies of doing less, of pulling back. And I think, you know, although they're very different, um, you know, there's some similarities there between Presidents Obama and Trump, both of whom I think, you know, wanted to do a bit less. I mean, Obama in a very, very different way, and he was a liberal internationalist, but I think he did want to see some uh, retrenchment. And in some ways, you know, Trump, you know, took that to, to extremes in different ways and in a much more nationalistic uh, direction. But I try to look at those strategies in detail too and to show how, you know, your choice of strategy isn't just about details, it's really also about the type of world you want to create. And, uh, uh, you know, to me, there are really two options available. One is some version of what we've had before of the liberal international order, and the other is a much more mercantilist, nationalistic spheres of influence system where China's preeminent in East Asia, uh, sharing power with the U.S., and Russia is much more powerful than Eastern Europe. So let me circle back to what you said 
uh, towards the beginning on force projection, uh, because towards what you said at the end, you echo um, Lauren Summer, Larry Summers' article on the uh, FT in the editorial, which I strongly recommend reading, where he outlines, which is a pessimistic view of uh, what happened during the G20 summit, and uh, he portrays a very worrying picture. But one of the critical and, and under-discussed facets of U.S. leadership is, as you says, as you said, force projection. Uh, it's protection, the U.S. protection, protecting international shipping lanes, for example, which nobody really discusses. The U.S. plays a critical balancing uh, military role in the world. So, is there a substantial risk um, of the U.S. pulling back from that role? And what can do? What can what can the, the, the U.S. do, um, if anything, to try and invest uh, in that role, in others, um, where others will find alliance to help share that burden? Yeah, I, you know, I think there are two categories of risk, right? I think there's a risk that's unique to Trump, and then there's a more general risk that would have happened whoever is president, right? If it was Hillary Clinton or Marco Rubio or whoever. And the risk with Trump is that he will decide that this stuff is not important to him. Right, that he does not want to fulfill America's traditional commitments. You know, he doesn't understand why the U.S. is in Europe and, and won't push back if challenged there. Or maybe if he's offered a deal on North Korea, he'll sort of pull back in the South China Sea and not see its significance or to be willing to trade it away for an economic deal with China. So that is sort of the risk with him. I think that that risk has mitigated somewhat over the last six months, partly because um, his cabinet is very mainstream and they're very much pushing in the traditionalist direction and he has tried to pull back in some ways from this but he's been sort of persuaded not to and so the recent kerfuffle over article 5 in NATO I think was a good example where he basically had to reverse himself I mean he tried to resist he never endorsed it for sort of four or five months he was asked to do so at Brussels and he took it out of the speech but then he did so at a press conference with the Romanian president and then again recently and I think it was under duress but it was partly because he sort of realized that you know that the alternative was to run a high level of risk that we you know, that his cabinet just thought was unacceptable. Um, and in the South China Sea, you know, after a period of really easing all freedom of navigation operations, they're sort of doing more and they're sort of signaling that they will be present there. So I'm a little bit, you know, relieved in terms of that, you know, that, that he's not sort of undertaking a massive revolutionary change in, in, in those areas at the moment. Now, I've always thought with him that the risk is less in proactive attempts to revolutionize American foreign policy and more in what he may not do at a time of crisis. And so if he actually, you know, face a crisis in Eastern Europe or in the South China Sea, would he do something that cost political capital, that required him to rally the people for, you know, to uphold the international order or would he not? And I think that jury is still out. But in general, I think the signs have been a little bit reassuring uh, in recent months. Um, but the second category of risk, which in many ways is more difficult, is the risk that, you know, Clinton or Rubio or anyone else would have faced, which is um, that the U.S. is actually under pressure in these key regions, um, particularly from a revisionist uh, powers. And in, in the South China Sea, I think we see it with China. China is not a revisionist power globally, but it is regionally, and it is looking, I think, to seek an enhanced sphere of influence. 
And what revisionist powers do, and have always done very successfully, is to basically go after things that the status quo power regards as not particularly important or vital, right? Things that are sort of on the periphery. And then they say, you know, you don't care about that so much to jeopardize your entire relationship with us. Like, why would you, je why would you run the risk of conflict over, you know, some island like Woody Island or, you know, back in the 30s over, you know, the Danzig Corridor or Sudetenland or in the 19th century, you know, the U.S. actually said it to Britain in terms of Venezuela or, you know, other, other areas of contention. And so revisionist powers, you know, they can be good or bad. It sort of depends on your perspective. I mean, the U.S. has been a revisionist power uh, in the past um, as well. But just from a purely strategic point of view, um, it, it puts a great pressure on the status quo power if a country be be, be, be uh, engages in uh, revisionist actions and um, because the truth is that on a case-by-case -case basis it's actually probably not worth the overall relationship right now the problem is in the aggregate it adds up to quite a lot right so one little island in the South China Sea is not very important but dozens and dozens of them may be strategically significant and um, but each time it's you know what Thomas Schelling called sort of a slammy slicing strategy so the US I think has a problem in the maritime area in uh, in in uh, in East Asia, particularly Southeast Asia, also to some degree in the East China Sea, although the dynamics are a little bit different there, and then in Eastern Europe as well on land in terms of some of the Russian um, uh, behavior. And I think that's a big strategic problem. You know, that's something uh, I talk in the book about how I would address it. I think that the key is not to engage in a tit-for-tat response in every to every provocation, but to look at the overall strategic objective of the rival power and to try to deny them their objective in the aggregate. So I think there are ways to, to do that. Um, but, um, but overall, I think it is a problem. And I think maintaining that sort of, you know, the space in the commons is really crucial to, particularly at sea in Asia, is crucial to maintaining a healthy regional order there. Um, because if if uh, China gains control of the South China Sea, it won't necessarily close those sea lanes immediately, but it does change, I think, the nature of the order there. It makes it more China-centric. It would, potentially, would, I think, weaken U.S. alliances in the medium uh, to long term. And I think its spheres of influence system is overall much more unstable, actually, than the system that we have at the moment. So let's dive deeper, deeper into uh, uh, the issue of the South China Sea, uh, because these two key regions, it seems to us, Asia, Southeast Asia, from uh, Korea to the South China Sea problems, and China's increased assertiveness, uh, militarily and politically, and of course the Middle East, uh, which is strife, strife and chaos. But um, as you know, crises always intervene before presidents find time to create a coherent world uh, order. So. What are the consequences of a decline in the institutions of global order for these two regions? So what might you see happening? For the Middle East and East Asia? Um, well, I think that there are, you know, in, in the book I sort of argue that actually the two regions of utmost strategic importance are East Asia and Europe. And I think that that, um, I'm not trying to dodge the question about the Middle East, um, but, but I think that those, uh, to me, those are the sort of critical um, regions um, and that are that have significant sort of problems, and the Middle East, as I see it, is actually um, a little bit different. It's not um, 
a prize to be won as, as such. I mean, I don't think there's this great game for sort of control um, of the Middle East. Um, but I do think um, that the question is how to sort of manage this massive instability that's at the heart of the region and whether or not sort of pulling back will exacerbate that risk of contagion and potentially destabilize Europe, maybe even in times sort of East Asia uh, as well and the interaction between these between these regions. And, and I, I think it would actually, I think sort of pulling back from the Middle East would have broader um, destabilizing uh, effects. Um, but I think that the dynamic in each is actually um, different. I think in, 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 in East Asia, I do think it is actually largely about China. You know, I mean, there's many things happening in East Asia. Um, there's lots of uh, things happening independently um, of China. But I think in terms of the geopolitical instability, what I worry about is China's actions uh, to its east, like in, in particularly in the maritime space. I think more broadly, China's actions to its west with the One Belt, One Road and its broader sort of institutional uh, initiatives with the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, I'm actually more relaxed about those because I think while we may disagree with them, I think they're more normal, they're more legitimate, they're things that can be responded to with positive proposals of our own. Um, but it's really in the maritime space, I think, and in the more coercive diplomacy side of it in East Asia, um, that's destabilizing. So I'm not, you know, I don't know if it's a decline of global global sort of institutions, I think it has an impact on global institutions and will change those. Uh, in the Middle East, I think it's it's a mainly to do with the failure of the Arab awakening, which really sort of was the um, was the nail in the coffin in terms of that old order um, that was stable, not very liberal at all, but provided some stability uh, for the region that, you know, leaders just consistently bought more time on by propping it up until it couldn't be propped up anymore. Mm -hmm. So in the book, you, you trace a very nice um, chronological um, analysis on Russia and China vision of world order. And you give a quote by President by the Bush administration uh, with, that expressed hope that China would be a responsible stakeholder in the international order. So what is um, Russia's vision of uh, global order? Because I remember at the, um, the Brookings Institution launch for your book, uh, Robert Kagan said, oh, Russia has been declining for the last yeah. uh, 400 years, but they're still there. And um, so what's, what do you see as Russia's vision of global order? And on the Chinese perspective, uh, how, would they, how would one measure success in that area? How would they measure success in terms of the future of the international order? Yeah. Um, so Russia, you know, it's impossible really to disaggregate, I guess, the Russian view from the Putin view, um, but I'll try a little bit. I mean, I think there's Medvedev and other Russian politicians, I think, had a problem with the Western order, and they saw it as, uh, you know, a tool of American power, and they worried about NATO expansion. But they also, I think, were open to engagement. Uh, they believed that maybe Russia had a future with structural economic reform. They could conceive of sort of changes in Russian society that would, you know, result in modernization. Um, and they, they were still nationalistic, but I think they had a more sort of complex, nuanced view of it. Um, famously, of course, uh, Medvedev backed uh, Obama on the intervention in Libya, much to Putin's um, annoyance. And Putin is, I think, 
fundamentally different though like he he is he has an ideological critique of the international order that runs very very deep like he believes that it is a direct threat uh, to Russia um, he uh, is paranoid I think about Western uh, behavior not so much in terms of NATO expansion with NATO troops being closer to the Russian border I actually think that's uh, a bit of a red herring uh, you know uh, NATO's military strength in Europe has declined massively over the course of the last 20 years that's the whole argument about Europe not spending enough right so, um, so that has declined but I think he does legitimately worry from his point of view about color revolutions about unconventional uh, political warfare uh, he sees the US as having started that he sees his recent action having responded to it and I think he wants to basically overturn that order particularly in Europe I mean he would like to break NATO and he would like to massively undermine or weaken the European Union and he's going about it in a series of innovative measures um, he wants to establish a Russian sphere of influence he doesn't have much going for him in terms of the tools at his disposal and um, but he does have hard power he does have the will to use that hard power he does have the sort of diplomatic power and he is using that and um, to considerable uh, effect I think and so the other thing that's sort of interesting about Putin is that he actually has very little stake in the global economic order like he doesn't unlike China we will come to in a second he doesn't sort of see the global economic order as being vital to Russia's success in fact he believes that Russia's reliance on that order is a strategic vulnerability and that Russia needs to delink uh, from globalization and become more autonomous so right back to his PA you know his dissertation he sort of wrote about that sort of seeing strategic autonomy as a crucial uh, part of, of, of Russian uh, strategy and so he I think is someone who you know sees a more traditional type of world order with the great powers uh, where Russia is one of the great powers where Russia has a veto over anything significant really that happens in Europe um, where you know things are organized around the UN Security Council not because of international law but because that gives Russia a veto over over everything and the US is sort of retreated so I think that's you know that's a very different sort of vision of the world and then we have today China I think you know has some similarities but it is fundamentally different you know it's not a power in decline it's rising and it has a lot of economic power it has a stake in the global economy and there I think you know the big diff the big sort of contradiction in China is that it is largely I think a responsible stakeholder ish uh, ish internationally in terms of the global order and um, but it is revisionist regionally and it is seeking to you know uh, develop this enhanced sphere of influence uh, in East Asia and the question is which is more important is its global status quo orientation more important or its regional revisionism and I argue that actually the regional and revisionism is more important because and this is sort of a theme running through the book that ultimately the global order rests on healthy regional orders not on global institutions global institutions are important um, but it is more significant what a major power does in its neighborhood on matters of territory and respect for its neighbors uh, than it is about arguments over voting rates at the IMF or the World Bank like those things are important but they, they don't really define what countries want 
And so I think that regional part is really where everything uh, starts. And there, I think, its goals are actually fairly similar to Russia's, although it goes about it in very different ways. It's not using hard power, it's not invading others, but it is using civilian vessels to remake, uh, you know, the the, uh, the control of the South China Sea and other, and, uh, uh, other measures of coercive diplomacy. I'd like to dive more into the Middle East um, because you didn't go as much into the book, which is understandable. You covered a lot. Uh, but taking the example of um, what hap what's happening in Syria, uh, so there's no domestic pressure to do something about Syria. Um, supposing that Assad leaves tomorrow, uh, then what do we do? Uh, what follows from the moral decision uh, to depose him? Does democ democracy automatic automatically succeed him? If not, um, since you mentioned uh, that the regional is more important than the global institutions, so what is the government governance structure that will not uh, magnify the threat? Yeah, no, it's, uh, if I had the answer to that question, um, <laughs> I, I'd uh, probably be talking to the, the president right now. And no, I you know, I think that the, to me, like the question on the Middle East comes down to sort of two choices. Like one choice is what Obama did and um, is to say, look, the Middle East is a mess. We don't want to get dragged in more. So we have to identify specific interests and protect those. We need a list of four or five things, you know, security of Israel, counterterrorism, protection of energy, uh, you know, a few, a few other, a few other uh, things, but no use of chemical weapons um, and so on. And, and he said those, you know, the U.S. will play a constructive role in advancing other interests like a regional order and but or the end to hostilities in Syria, but only if others played their part too, and only if it was at an acceptable cost, right? And this actually sounded, I think, very reasonable um, to a lot of people. The problem with it was, was that, you know, by disavowing any responsibility for regional equilibrium, um, and by sort of assuming that that equilibrium would emerge on its own, as he did in his various interviews with Jeff Goldberg uh, in the Atlantic, um, that the situation got immeasurably worse. And the consequences of that narrowness of interests uh, resulted in costs uh, that were massively contagious. And so the refugee flows from Syria almost collapsed the European Union, which is not something that they talked about in the Obama administration when they initially made the decision to sort of limit U.S. involvement. And so my, my view, um, which I sort of say in, in, in the book, is that um, ultimately... That sort of level of disengagement and sort of disavowing of responsibility for regional equilibrium uh, will be hugely uh, catastrophic. Um, because if it's true that we're at the beginning of a 30 years war, um, shouldn't we be doing everything in our power to prevent that from becoming a 30 years war, you know, rather than sitting back and saying, you know, it's inevitable. And so I do think that there's a responsibility there to try to impose some uh, regional order. Now, you know, we are where we are, and it's very, very hard to do that, and, you know, there are virtually no good options left. I think that the what Trump has started to do on the Middle East, um, I think it is quite flawed, but it, but it's part of it, part of it is a rec recognizing a consensus, really, from the non-Obama sort of foreign policy establishment on, on the Democratic side and on the Republican side, that the only play left is really to support uh, Sunni Arab states and to push back against Iran. Um, 
I think that that, you know, there's something to that. The question is, what do you do once you started to do it, right? Do you do that in the initial phase and then negotiate with Iran from at a later point on a regional equilibrium from a position of strength? Or do you sort of just keep going, right? There's a risk that Trump will keep going, I think. But my, my proposal will be, um, which is not unique to me, is to basically try to reestablish the balance of power in the region by pushing back against Iran, and then at a future point, negotiate with them for some type of regional equilibrium that would involve respect for majority and minority rights within countries, and sort of to try to freeze the situation in terms of this regional cold war that's raging uh, for control of the domestic governance systems of contested states. So I'll, I'll leave it to the Middle East to, to, to what you said, and if the audience wants to bring more questions on the Middle East. But I, I want to circle back on the, um, go back to the US and EU and the transatlantic relation and ask you about do competitive world powers, since we have a rising America first agenda, a dented EU, um, signify a retreat from international alliances, multilateral institutions, and democracy? Um. You know, it's interesting what's happening in Europe. I mean, I, so I've been pessimistic about Europe for a while, um, really since about 2010. I mean, I think that Europe has been stuck in this lost decade, you know, after the financial crisis. And what we've seen and what I describe in the book are these multiple crises that are layered on top of each other and a negative synergy between them. So with the Euro crisis and the Russia-Ukraine crisis and the refugee sort of Syria crisis and Brexit and now Trump, right? And so all of these sort of reinforce uh, each other. And there's very little way out um, because Europe as a, you know, the European Union is sort of stuck in this halfway anti-Goldilocks position where it's, everything is sort of just about wrong. So there's there's enough integration um, to be vulnerable, but not enough to have sort of common protections on, say, the financial side or even on the control of border side. And it's almost impossible to unwind it because no one knows how to unwind it in a responsible way. And it's almost impossible to go forward because everyone disagrees about what that would look like. And so there are fundamentally different views in Germany and in France and in Eastern Europe, and these visions are sort of contested. And so, you know, we're left where Europe is sort of muddling through, but it's still very, very vulnerable. And, you know, it's likely that future crises will exact a major toll as they have sort of in the past. So I have, that's been my general position. Um, I do think that there's some signs of, um, hope with Macron and with, with Merkel, even with Schultz, if he if he won, I think you know he's very mainstream as well, obviously. Um, but it looks like it will be Merkel. Um, but I don't think it's going to be straightforward. I mean, I think it's going to be an incredibly difficult lift uh, for them to do so. Um, but there is some. Uh, that you know the recent economic numbers have been generally okay. I think the Trump shock has sort of immobilized in a way internationalists in Europe to say, "Is this really what we want?" You know, on Brexit, and it sort of provided a a a, um, a meaning and a, and a cause uh, to people that maybe they were lacking because it's sort of very clear now. You know, it's one thing to be populist and criticizing you know, the status quo when there aren't that many consequences or when it's not likely it will work. But now, you know, if France had voted for Le Pen, that would have had a major, you know, a huge global impact. And so I think that there is um, some possibility, but it's still very, very divided. I mean, what I really can't figure out is how 
Europe would essentially agree on a path forward. I mean, if we look at even just last week in Poland with the president in Poland, you know, the old Europe, new Europe divide is sort of back. Like Eastern European countries are steadfastly opposed to further integration. And then there are massive differences still between the French and German visions. And so I think it will be very, very, very difficult. Um, but I think that there are some people finally who are willing to sort of try and, the, you know, the, the challenge is, I think, Germany's sort of vision of further integration is so uh, is so restricted and, and austere in so many ways, and that it makes it hard uh, in in terms of getting you know getting a sort of consensus in the eurozone. But that brings me to uh, what we talked earlier about that fascination for populism and nationalism, which you're working on uh, right now in your next research in a number of countries. Uh, but you touched on something I think that's very important and often uh, neglected in security discussion, uh, which is the fallout of the 2008 economic crisis, which seems to have disempowered many citizens uh, in many countries, or even accelerated uh, their disempowerment, leading them expressing themselves through electoral process and other processes nowadays. So I wanted to ask you and, and give your sense of that. Um. Yeah, you know, I think that the on the on the populist side, um, I, I think that the financial crisis is probably the most significant, you know, event since you know the fall of the Berlin Wall. I mean, it's I think more significant than the 9/11 in terms of the international order because that really was an outside sort of attack that, you know, that led to, you know, created lots of challenges geopolitically, but it largely united the world against this common uh, threat. The, the financial crisis, the worst since the 1930s, is something that's ended international orders in the past, you know, and it's something that, ha you know, that I think we thought would be over, some people thought would be over quite quickly, but we're sort of still living with the consequences of it now. You know, the thing that was fortunate was that the international order in 2008 was actually pretty healthy, right? And when the financial crisis hit in 1929 to 33, it was not healthy. And we sort of had problems that are not as bad as those in the 30s because I think we went into it in better health, you know, so we had better geopolitical health. And But that doesn't mean we haven't had problems. So we've had big problems. Um, the irony is that I think the governments of the world responded to the financial crisis as about as good as they could have in the early phases, maybe not so much um, later on. But no one really cares about that because they all, um, because they don't compare it to how people did in the 30s, right? They compare it to their lives before the crisis and they look at the downside of sort of saving the system, you know, bailout for banks and other things. And so it generates lots of resentment. And over time, as the, as the growth is sort of lower and as politics sort of takes its toll, democratic politics takes its toll um, on the response, um, you see uh, greater dissatisfaction, you know, on people demanding change, and particularly in Europe, where I think the problem, one of the big problems in Europe is that the centre-left and the centre-right are basically uh, both sort of bound into the same set of constraints, and so they essentially have very, very similar policies. And so when people came to vote at elections, they felt like they had no mechanism to actually have change, because either left or the right were going to have to buy into whatever the agreement was with Germany or in the EU or in the Eurozone, and so there was no choice there. And I think what, what essentially happened was um, that 
that was sort of manageable early on, but every election cycle made it weaker, right? Made the center weaker. And we've now been through several election cycles. And so it's getting weaker every time, right? And sometimes you run out of road. Like we ran out of road in Greece a few years ago. That created a crisis that was sort of managed just about, you know, in the U.S., Obviously, we had the election um, uh, last year. But I think the longer this goes on, at some point, it's unsustainable. Like, it can't continue for 100 years, or it probably can't continue for 50 or even 30. So then the question is, how long will it? And I think the populism risk has not gone away, and it won't really until we have robust levels of growth back. And there's a sense that that, you know, the crisis is sort of well and truly over. So I'll ask one more question to Tom, and then I'll open to the audience to leave a good uh, 40 minutes to you all. Um, that's a question I asked you actually at the Chicago Council um, online, and as the idea of the shining city on the hill is weakening, um, is the idea of U.S. exceptionalism breaking down? Yeah, you know, I think America is sort of multifaceted, you know, so so I think America for the world is, is not just Donald Trump, right? It's not just people don't look at, at the U.S. and just see Trump. They see him for sure, but they also see all of the other things um, that the country um, represents. And I think there are still many people who make the case for sort of American exceptionalism, even within uh, the Trump administration. And I think ultimately, you know, people can distinguish between a government that they may or may not like and the broader sort of behavior of the country over time. And the U.S., I think, is still playing a crucially important role uh, in the international order. And so, you know, if you were to say to people, do you... Uh, agree or disagree with Trump, you may get a large number of people internationally saying that we don't like Trump. You know, but if you were to say to people, you know, do you want a post-American world or do you want the U.S. to retreat and just be done with the U.S., they'd probably give you a very different answer, right? So their answer to Trump is actually more America, more of the traditional America, not less. And I don't think that that's fundamentally going to change because ultimately I don't really think that there's a there's an alternative you know, to sort of U.S. leadership in the international order if we are to have a continually healthy international order. And so the big choice, though, I think, facing the U.S. will be in, you know, two or three years' time is, you know, whether or not to sort of double down on this sort of nationalism, whether it's a liberal or a conservative nationalism, and to do less in the world and to pull back, or to try to re-engage and restore that international order to what it was and to restore um, American leadership. And you mentioned my colleague Bob Kagan uh, before, but he, he has a, an interesting insight that he's made on a number of occasions, which is one of the problems about the, the world order is that you know, the, the people in the heartlands are actually the last people that will be affected by uh, the decline of that order, right? So if Europe falls apart or Asia falls apart, it will hit everyone else long before it will hit sort of Americans. And actually, the worse the world gets, the stronger the argument for staying out. You know, so he says that in the 30s, you know, the worse it got, then people say, look, we told you it would get bad, and now we should do nothing, right? And so it's not that when things decline or deteriorate that there's this sort of impulse to get more involved. So, so I think it is a big question mark, and I really don't know... Um, the answer I, I, in terms of how it will come out. But I, I would say I am, you know, optimistic. I think that I, I think that a lot of this, some of this is structural, but I think a lot of it is individual, actually. I think the degree of Trump's antipathy 
toward the order and toward America's role is fairly unique to him. Like others may want to do less, but they do still believe in that notion of U.S. leadership, both on the left and on the right. And I think that will reemerge, particularly as it's sort of revealed at the current course that there's not really a plan there and that it's not leading to more positive outcomes. Thank you, Tom. Well, now I'll open it to the audience, uh, though please keep your questions short, preferably 150 words, uh, Twitter-sized questions will be great, um, and introduce yourself and your affiliation. Thank you. Yeah, um, so, um, so I, I guess I was, I was a little uh, unclear in terms of what, I thought the Richard Hass's book was very interesting, but I wasn't totally clear how sort of the notion of sovereign responsibility sort of differed from what we had, you know, with the responsibility to protect and with, you know, countries sort of having conditional sovereignty or contingent sovereignty over the last um, uh, few years or so. But I think he did capture something that I, I do think it's important to, you know, he, he had some points on that that I thought were valid, although I think we've sort of taken them on board, although Trump has cast them aside. The main difference, though, I think, between what he was arguing and what I'm arguing is that I, I think that the most significant development in world politics is this return of major power competition. And a, I see that as sort of affecting everything else. I think that's sort of the organizing principle of the strategic era into which we are entering. And so I probably place greater importance on that overall, I think, than he would. Um, I think that it, that affects the levels of global cooperation that we're going to have in other issues. It affects how we look at the Middle East. It affects the global economy. And I think we need to think very systematically about it because one thing that we didn't get a chance to mention yet is that, you know, if you think that we've been, about how we've been integrating so rapidly economically, and that now we find that that's actually created lots of strategic vulnerabilities, right? And so we're seeing really the weaponization of globalization and interdependence in a way that we haven't seen before. And so what I'm arguing for really in this strategy of responsible competition is that we need to take this notion of 21st century geopolitical competition much more seriously than we have been. We need to think about all facets of that. Uh, we need to think about the values component, whether or not it's an ideological competition. We need to think about the revisionist component in terms of how to deter this regional revisionism we spoke about earlier. We need to think about the integration side of it, uh, whether or not it makes sense to continue with unadulterated really economic integration when that could create strategic um, vulnerabilities. Um, and I think we, you know, we need to think about how the Middle East fits into that too, um, you know, and look at the importance of the Middle East through the prism of that broader, uh, uh, that broader strategic competition. And finally, we need to think about what doesn't matter, like to avoid actually getting dragged into a new Cold War where it's a full spectrum competition and actually identifying uh, the, 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 the areas that are truly problematic and understanding the difference between those and maybe areas that are not as worrisome even though we may not necessarily agree with them. And so I think that would be, that, that would probably be how it differs 
uh, I think from his, although I'd have to go back and refresh my memory a little bit because I think it was January when I when I read the book. <laughs> Thank you. We'll take another questions. Yes, sir. Yes, the concept of regional revisionism, do you think that's somewhat naive applying it to China? Do not China's actions uh, represent a much grander um, end state in terms of really a global hegemon? Yeah, I don't think China really is a, a, a you know, has aspirations of being a global um, hegemon for a few reasons. I guess one is I think it's normal that countries actually focus regionally. Like maybe at a later point, uh, that debate will come. Um, but global hegemons are very, very rare. Um, you know, the the Soviets, of course, had uh, global um, aspirations, but sort of after they sort of inherited a, a regional dominance from World War II, which was a, you know, if that hadn't happened, you know, after wars, I think it's different because they, they present different, you know, sort of a, 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 a redrawing of the, of, the, of the board in a way um, that, that we wouldn't have now because we're unlikely to have a major conflict. So I think that the, on the economic front as well, I think China does have a stake in the international economic um, order. Um, I don't think they have sort of a fundamentally different vision of it. I think there are problems with Chinese economic behavior for sure, the lack of reciprocity and a sort of mercantilist behavior, but it's generally been fairly supportive of the global economic order. Yeah. Of all the rising states in the world, if you were to perceive a potential global would not China be the most capable of pursuing such a goal? And a follow-up question to that would be, if China understands that there are so many nations that are so closely interconnected with the economy, would not China want to leverage that to the extent possible to just ratchet and incrementally increase its figure of influence as it has represented in the South China Sea probably yeah, I, I just don't see, I mean, I think they, they may want more global influence, but that's not the same as being a global hegemon. So if you look at the Middle East, for instance, right, the Chinese debate in the Middle East, um, they do talk about trying to increase uh, Chinese influence in the region, but they talk about it really only in economic terms. Like they basically want to be on good terms with everyone. Right. If you want to be a global hegemon or a hegemon in the Middle East, your strategy can't be to be on good terms with everyone, right? Because at some point you've got to choose. You've got to choose whether to contain Iran or support Iran. You've got to choose between sort of zero-sum outcomes. And they steadfastly refuse to try to do that, right? So they're willing, uh, you know, maybe to be a diplomatic facilitator uh, for talks here or there, but not to spend any real capital and not to make difficult decisions. And that you know, I think suggests that they really have very little strategic interest in the long term at the moment, you know, in the Middle East. And that could change, but there's no sign of it yet. Um, similarly, in Europe, you know, the last thing they want to do is sort of to take a real strong view on security issues in Europe or to be a player there, you know, to back Ukraine against Russia or Russia against Ukraine. You know, they're very careful about that, even at the UN Security Council level. So I think from their point of view, like they... They just feel that we're biting off way more than they could chew. They don't, you know, and they don't really have any aspiration for it. And the point I try to make in the book, though, is that even if they're not, that doesn't mean that they're not a problem, right? Because I've sort of found less that people 
you know, there are a couple of people who make the argument you're making, I think, that they do have global aspirations. And, but other people will say the fact that they don't have global aspirations mean that they aren't a challenge. And what I'm doing in the book is to try to say they actually are a challenge because, you know, how East Asia goes does have global consequences. And so if they emerge as the preeminent power in East Asia and remake regional order there, that has global consequences for the global order, even if they're not a global hegemon. Right. The final point I'd make is uh, the one other additional reason I'm wary of sort of the global hegemon frame, apart from the fact that I don't agree with it, is that I think it leads it would lead us to respond to them in all sorts of areas that I think would be counterproductive. So I don't think it's really worth getting worked up over Chinese economic ties in South America. Like I don't see that as a strategic problem, really. I think you know they should knock themselves out. If they want to do that, they can do that, and the U.S. can do the same thing, and Europe can do the same thing, and we'll see where that goes. Similarly, in Africa, you know, there are many problems with Chinese investment in Africa, but they're largely between China and African nations, right, in terms of the future of their countries. They don't, I think, feed into a, a strategic competition between the U.S. and China. And I think one of the mistakes the U.S. made in the Cold War was to see everything, really, in terms of the Soviet threat, you know, and, and obviously there were many mistakes that were made that were partly because things were defined as part of that Cold War that maybe had other origins. And so that's sort of where I think I probably come, come down in it. If you allow me, I just want to echo the good question you ask. Um, since we're all about this discussion of trade wars with China and so on, uh, do you think China would be willing to take a hit financially to inflict pain on the United States? Yeah, I think it depends over what. You know, I mean, I think that the they definitely would be on things that they care really deeply about, and I think those things are pretty well known. I mean, Taiwan. Uh, you know, the, the regime stability in China, uh, probably Hong Kong, um, you know, maybe the South China Sea, the sort of things they define as their core interests, maybe maybe a little less than that. There's obviously a dispute about what those core interests are. But, um, but I think on those things, you know, they would be willing to, you know, their calculation would be that the U.S. threshold for pain is far lower than theirs, and they may be willing to actually you know, take a hit if they think that a smaller hit to the U.S. would actually cause more, uh, you know, uh, damage here politically. Um, but I think more generally, you know, they're taking some risks on their strategy to create a sphere of influence. Um, but we haven't, as, you know, Eli Ratner, Council on Foreign Relations argues, we haven't really tested their appetite for that risk in terms of pushing back. And so we don't know really how far they're willing to push things. And and actually, there's some evidence that when there has been strong pushback in the South China Sea, they have pushed, they have pulled back, right? And so I think part of what's going on is a, is a testing of sorts to find out where, you know, the U.S. will push back and where it won't. Okay. The question in the back. Um, the cost of maintaining the American world order is measured in blood and treasure. And the question is, what are the benefits that we get from this world order? And if we if there are benefits, how much more should we be prepared to spend to maintain the world order? Or at what point should we say enough is enough that the benefits outweigh the cost? Yeah, so, you know, it's a really great question because I think, 
you know, one of the critiques of what I'm arguing, what other people are arguing who are sort of internationalists or liberal internationalists is, you know, that we're basically saying if you stop doing this, that the world will sort of fall apart and that it will get really bad and that that cost of re-engaging at a later stage would be much higher and that the unraveling will be sort of very significant. And to some degree, you know, it's fair to say that what we're, what we're arguing is just sort of a hypothetical. Like, we don't really know, right? So we don't really know if the U.S. pulled back from Asia or ended alliances in Asia, whether there will be conflict or not. Like, we could think there might be, but we don't know for sure. And we don't know if Trump actually did pull out of NATO, uh, what Russia might do. Um, and one could say that it would be quite limited, or one could say, as a lot of the academic realists do, that it would be terrible, but actually the U.S. would be quite protected from it, right? That the U.S. could simply pull back, and if there was conflict in Europe or Asia, it's unlikely there would be a regional hegemon, which is a long-standing U.S. concern, and so they could fight it out of sorts. And my point would be, though, that I do think, actually, that the world we have had over the last 20 years has been, has been actually better than a lot of people think. And for all of the problems, you know, it compares pretty well to periods in the past. There has been geopolitical stability, there has been, uh, you know, economic growth. And I think to actually engage in, a, in, a, in an experiment, a strategic experiment of unilaterally pulling back from that, uh, with all of the reasons we have to be cautious about what could ha happen next, I think is a risk too much. And so my view is that, you know, as we saw in the Middle East, when the U.S. did sort of pull back for understandable reasons after Iraq and after the Arab awakening, that the consequences almost collapsed the European Union. And I do think there's reason to believe with Putin that if the U.S. pulled out of Europe, um, that the, you know, that the, the instability could spread quite rapidly uh, throughout Eastern Europe, and I think something similar uh, could happen in East Asia. So at the end of the day, these are sort of judgment calls, right? It's not, I don't think there's a, there's a hard and fast um, sort of number on it, um, but I do think that the, you know, the, the, the real test is, like, what is the, you know, you, one could argue that the interventions in the Middle East have been costly, but what has the cost been of upholding NATO? Right, what has the cost been of upholding the alliances in Asia? And I think it's pretty unbalanced. It, it's, it really justifies the benefit. You know, the cost of NATO is maybe in defense spending, but it, you know, the NATO countries have been at peace with Russia, you know, in a high state of tension sometimes for quite some time. So it sort of worked, and similarly in East Asia. So I think there's a really high bar for actually dismantling the regional order in those two parts of the world. We have time for two more questions, um, sir, in the back. Uh, I have read your article about King Kwangi. Uh, how do you evaluate that example of King Kwangi overall? I think I'm actually saying, just I'm struggling to write a follow-up article to that in terms of how to make sense of it. So you'll get sort of my my. Uh, thoughts in draft form. Um, I think that the, you know, I think that the G20, this meeting of the G20, some people describe it as a G19 plus one because the U.S. is isolated. But to me, the big story which sort of ties into the book is that there is no G19. Like the, the U.S. is not an anomaly here, right? That the, 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 the 
the G20 was sort of founded on the idea of convergence, that everyone was sort of going toward the same type of international order. And that's actually not true. And it wasn't true at the time of the US election, and it's definitely not true today. And Trump's election has sort of accelerated those trends. And so we see this contestation sort of for the future of the world order, and we see the G20 itself are becoming much more contested. So they're not, you know, the G20 meetings used to be incredibly boring, but now they're arguing about protectionism. There were side meetings between Putin and Trump where people worry if he'll agree to a sphere of influence or a partnership with Russia. There were all sorts of big things beginning to happen that haven't happened before. And I think what this summit shows is that that sort of contestation is well and truly underway. Now, on the specifics, um, I thought the meeting with Putin went very badly. You know, I think that Tillerson and Trump were duped in a way that they didn't have a lot of experience going in and it showed. Um, you know, it was an old Russian trick to sort of offer a committee or, you know, task force or investigation into something. And the fact that Trump raised the issue of hacking shows he was aware that he had to do something, um, but that he didn't promise any consequences, I think, undid all of that. Um, so I think that they hoped, and I think the fact that they wouldn't let the president do a press conference probably reflected that they were really worried about what he might say. And so their strategy was to try to restrict the flow of information. And so if there was no information about the meeting, then people wouldn't know if it went good or badly, and so they try to strictly limit that. And as we saw with the tweets this morning, the minute he did begin, and yesterday, the minute he did begin to speak, actually the whole thing began to unravel in terms of what he said about what he had agreed to and not. So, so I thought that part of it was bad. I thought the trade and the economic part was okay, um, in that they did agree communicate language. Um, you know, the protectionist threat has been averted for the moment. I mean, the steel tariffs could come in next week, so that could be undone in a few days' time. But in general, that part of it was a little bit more um, stable. The climate stuff, I think, was pretty much as we expected. You know, I don't think that was any um, surprise uh, in particular. Um, so I think that sort of, you know, that probably would be my sort of overall readout on it. To follow up on, on that question briefly, um, reminds me of what Trump announces with Cyber Alliance and then yeah. with Russia and then coming back to his word. And um, since we're all about the discussion on global order, um, I, was, I wanted to ask you, can, you, can there be a, a vision in the, in the technology internet age, a global order of technology? Um, yeah, I mean, the problem isn't the technology. The problem is the intentions, right? Like, the problem is that it's not cyber as some, you know, technological innovation. It's the fact that countries are engaged in a rivalry with each other, with each other and they see cyber as a tool to, to advance their interests in that competition. And that's, you know, and that's why Trump's idea obviously was so flawed was because, you know, there, there, it, this is not a misunderstanding. Right, this is not some misunderstanding between Russia and the United States. This is a clash of interests. Right now, from the Russian point of view, they'll say they're responding to a political war that the U.S. started, and from the U.S. point of view, it, it looks it looks very different. Right, but but they're not. You know, the idea that a task force or a unit on cybersecurity would achieve anything, I think, was very clearly. You know, everyone knew the minute they announced that 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 would never fly. Um, but I think it does. Uh, to me, the question is less about global cooperation and these things, which is can we come to some sort of strategic equilibrium on it where, you know, through various interactions and imposition of costs, we basically understand that certain types of behavior are acceptable and certain types of behavior aren't. That doesn't come, I think, 
in the abstract from sitting down negotiating varied experiences um, and the realization that certain types of action will be counterproductive. And so if Russia had paid a cost uh, for for that maybe it would prevent them from doing in the future and maybe you know if you know because of the election last year you know the next time there's a protest in Moscow I mean that may you know affect US calculations too in terms of what the Russian response might be and over time we might figure out what is actually worthwhile and what isn't I think that's the only and that's what happened with nuclear weapons in a very different way you know it, it, there was not mutually served destruction from the beginning it took a while to take effect this will be very different and um, but those interactions may lead to some sort of equilibrium uh, over time we have time for one more question sir um, so this was a small part of, of our report but I was curious about a comment you made describing uh, the explanation of, of NATO enlargement uh, uh, and, and, and Russian aggression is, is a red herring. I was wondering if you could expound on that. From my understanding, um, NATO enlargement is the movement of uh, heavy weapons capabilities to the Baltics um, and other provocations upon perhaps, you know, in, in exchange for the West and Russia, uh, explain a large part of the status quo relations between the two countries. Uh, 2010 2014, Russian defense white paper cited NATO enlargement as a violation of their vital interests. Uh, they fought two wars in 10 years um, in two countries that were, were candidates for um, accession to Western security infrastructure. Um, they absorbed significant economic punishments, so the analysis said it was in position 20 uh, to get sanctioned early from that. Yeah, uh, so, so I do think that it, I do think that NATO and the EU were seen by Putin as a threat, but I don't think it was because of the troops, right? Like, I, I think that it was because of the political threat, particularly from color revolutions. And, you know, it's notable that the Ukraine crisis, I mean, started over an association agreement with the EU, not with NATO. And I think the NATO expansion has been, everyone I think really understands, it's been off the table for those uh, former Soviet countries since Georgia in 2008, right? There's really been no prospect of that. The idea that Obama was going to expand NATO to include Georgia or Ukraine, I think, was just totally impossible, right? I mean, anyone who followed it at all, I think, knows that he would not have done that, and the Germans uh, were opposed to it. And I think I, I do know, I mean, you're right, the Russians have complained about it for a long time, but I'm arguing that objectively, uh, they did not face a severe military threat from NATO, but I do think that they understood, and I, I get the point about perceptions, but I do think that they perceived a much greater threat actually politically, that they did believe, with some justification from their point of view, um, that, uh, you know, that the spreading of democracy to their, to their neighbors could result in, you know, the power of example with color revolution in Moscow down the road, and that if Ukraine had become democratic and, and uh, you know, market-oriented and associated with the EU, even with no troops from the West, that that would have posed a threat to Russia because it would be out of their control and it would be sort of a force for political liberalization and modernization. And I think if you look at 
how Putin's conceived of political warfare from 2012 when he came back and he initiated that review where they saw sort of color revolutions as a new type of warfare, that it very much fits in with his hostility to the EU in particular. I actually think he has more of a problem with the EU probably than he does with NATO because he sort of views the EU in a way as more pervasive and, and, um, and ultimately more threatening than NATO because I think he does get that you know, NATO is not going to wage an offensive war against Russia. Now, I, I take the point that he's he's made the anti-NATO remarks many times, but I think the underlying cause is that fear he has of his regime, of the regime's survival. Um, the question, and I'll just finish on this, the question that arises then is, you know, do we say essentially that because he worries about a threat from his own people, his own people getting inspiration from elsewhere, does that then give him a veto over, you know, democracy in other countries? Does that give him a right to interfere in democracy in his neighbors uh, to prevent that from taking hold? And my view is that it doesn't, right? I'm not, I don't think that NATO should be expanded to include Ukraine. I don't think it should be fully taken off the table because I don't think that any country should have a veto, but I don't think it's on the cards. I don't think anyone really thinks it's on the cards. Um, but I do think that the people of Ukraine have the right to be democratic if they want to be, right, and to be free of political interference. And I think that has a cost. So managing that cost, I think, is a, is, is, is a problem. It's a challenge. Well, Tom, as much as I would love to continue, it's been a pleasure. Thank and you. Um, thank you to you all really for contributing. Sorry,